Chris Chang and Phillips, and this is Let's Find Out, a podcast about the history of Edmonton, Alberta, or Amiskwichi with Skygon, on Treaty 6 territory. We take questions from curious Edmontonians about local history, and we find out the answers together. Let's Find Out is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. This episode, damn complicated. Trevor. Calling our producer, Trevor Chow Fraser. I, this is this is my bit where I call you to tell you what we're uh, working on for the episode this month, and um, okay. and uh, so I'm recording it. And also, this is where I, I call to ask you um, about your bracket. So, so first off, can you talk about March Mammal Madness? Well, okay. So the the bracket starts on Monday. So this is the weekend when I have to do all my research to find out, you know what kind of cat catastrophes will happen if I choose the wrong cat animal. I've got a pretty good idea of like who I want to pick, but I, there's so many weird animals with weird names that I don't even know what they are. So this is That's like a... the basketball thing where like animals are going head to head, but it's based on like their ability to like defeat each other with claws and, and poisons yeah. and stuff. Yeah, like at the most awesome end, it's like okay, if you if you pit a Siberian tiger against a great white shark, who's going to win? And a lot of that might depend on whether it's underwater or not. But uh, that, that's like at the top end. You're trying to you're asking those questions, but also it starts off with a lot of tiny animals too, like praying mantis and. You know, like honeybees and... So the way that this works is, like, you, you make your picks, and then the organizers, they have, like, some sort of calculation of, of like, what their odds are of success when fighting each other in X situation? Yeah, they have, a, they have like, a... It's, it's sort of run by this, like, stats class. Um, and so they've figured out, like, probabilities for the different animals, Um in like a neutral environment um but then when the actual confrontation happens it's uh staged in a random environment and so there's a there's a chance of that affecting the waiting um and then i think there's also other like there is a there's just like a random number generator in there as well so mm. uh some upsets can happen <laughs> okay so this month I, I, I'm going to be checking in with you to see how your how your animals do. But I also wanted to tell you what uh, so which story we're going to go with for this month. Excellent. Okay, so uh, Amanda Van Merlin, um, she had asked the question about dams. We're going to go with her question. Damn. Damn. Yeah. This is the Provincial Archives of Alberta, a very big, very quiet building where for the first time ever, I've been allowed to record in the reading room. But first, Amanda and I have got to walk past the gift shop to grab keys for our lockers. How many gift shops sell empty shoeboxes? Why would you buy those here? Okay. For, for talk, this is for my own, like, interest. <laughs> so, hello. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. Um... So this is the first episode of the Humans and Nature season. Right. I'm very excited. And uh, you uh, are not only one of the people who came to the live show, but uh, we've been friends since high school. 
I was actually thinking about this, and we've been friends since we were, well, we met in Theater Zocalo. Right. When we were eight or nine years old, and then we went to high school together. <laughs> and so it's been, it's been a while. <laughs> Would you mind introducing uh, who you are for those who did not go to Theater Zocalo with you? Okay, uh, so my name is Amanda Van Merlin, and I um, have worked at the museum. I am the Royal Alberta Museum. The Royal Alberta Museum, and I've also I've, I'm currently working in Aboriginal consultation. I am currently the president of the Archaeological Society of Al Alberta Edmonton Centre, and I am interested in history as part of my like jam. So, which is why I go to the live shows for Let's Find Out. The Archaeological Society has a much catchier like uh, Instagram handle, right? It's like Archie Edmonton. Yes, it's Archie Edmonton. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, thank you for coming to the live show. Um, did you have a good time? I had an excellent time. It was really fun, and the facilitation of the conversations was really interesting because, like, I didn't come in thinking about what I ended up asking about, but it was through the conversations that I had with other people that I started thinking about, like, oh, right. I remember that I had questions about this. Well, tell me what your question was that you that you ended up coming up with. Okay, so the question that I had was, how do dams change our relationship with water and rivers, specifically with regards to the North Saskatchewan River? And the reason that I was reminded of this is the Archaeological Society of Alberta, Edmonton Center, um, Archie Edmonton, um, has done a project at the Brazo Reservoir, which is a dam on within the North Saskatchewan River, the watershed. And one of the things in the very small amount of information that I got from Wikipedia was the river was dammed initially because they didn't want it going dry in the summertime, which is not something that I had ever thought about. And, and when we were doing the live show, I was reminded of the fact that we, my family lived in Riverdale when, we were in, when I was going to high school. And in 2005, uh, there were flood warnings on the North Saskatchewan. And so I remember for the first time being like, oh, right, the river is also dangerous. So like these two things sort of coalesced when I was at the live show. And then I was like, well, have they changed the relationship? Like, how's that going on? And then sort of like, what's going on in Calgary right now too, like with the 2013 flood and they're like, we need protections and all this kind of stuff. So it's just, it's sort of interesting, like does it change our relationship? And then, yeah, I'm just very curious about that. In 2005, your family was not still living in the River Valley or? Oh, we were moving. So we were, we were living in the River Valley and we were living in Rossdale. And my parents, we were renting that place and my parents had purchased a house and so, the funniest part about that is that we did move, nothing flooded along the river valley, but our basement backed up the second day we moved into this new house. So it's also just like, so there's, there's different kinds of flooding and then there's, there's just like, oh, this is ironic. <laughs> I think m most people also either don't know or forget that the North Saskatchewan River has dams on it. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really think about it either until I started research, like started doing the research project there. So, and then it was like, oh yeah, there's lots of these, and then there's lots more of these, and wow, a lot of them were built like in the '60s and stuff, and they're still standing. And wow. <laughs> um, do you mind telling me like what was the research project at the Brezzo Reservoir? 
Okay, so the research project came about um, because uh, a couple of people found a cache of bifaces. So those are um, stone tools that could be turned into knives, but right, like, when they found them, they were essentially blank. So they found, like, a cache of 13 of them um, on a landform that was on the reservoir. So if you do go to the reservoir and you do find an artifact, please don't pick it up. Please take a photo of it um, and send it to Alberta, the Alberta government's Report-A-Find. Um, and if you just go Alberta Report-A-Find in Google, so you just search Alberta Report-A-Find in Google, um, you we can will put that link on the website. Okay, please. And um, so what you can do is send it and then somebody will catalog it and maybe somebody will go to collect it. And um, but yeah, it was just it, it's just this rich cache of artifacts. But it gives us a nice picture of what the rest of the boreal forest might look like. Um, but you can't find as many things in the boreal forest because like there's tree coverage and preservation isn't that great. So we're looking at this as a really great analogy for what you might see in the boreal forest. And we are looking at using it to sort of test what other sites along rivers in the boreal forest might look like, archeologically speaking. Um, what I'm hoping that we can find here today is just sort of like some interesting documents about the building of some oh, of yeah. those dams. And I, I, what I really want to know is like, so there's that little bit in Wikipedia about how it was built for pollute, like it was so that the river didn't run dry. And I'm like, can we find something on that? Can we actually find that bit of information? Like, is that a true bit of information or is that just something that appeared in the Wikipedia page and has no basis in whatever? Huh. Cool. Um, I'm going to ask me to pass me a little note that said, please put your camera back in the locker. So okay. I'm going to do that. Um, and then I don't know where Karen went, but um, we'll head inside in a sec. But first, I want to talk to you a bit about Taproot Edmonton. I don't know if you ever get into these kinds of conversations at the bus stop where you start talking to someone about the bus being late and then you start talking about their intense observations of everyone around them and you ask what they do and they ask what you do and you say you make a podcast and they look it up and they're like, whoa, this is cool. How can I donate to it? This legit happened to me last week. And as the doors were closing behind me, I shouted out, join Taproot. And he was like, what? Because the door is closed. So I couldn't explain what that meant. But if I'd had a couple more stops before I had to get off, I would have said, it's this local media company that I really believe in and that I'm really proud to have supporting Let's Find Out this season. Taproot not only has our same mission about building stories around what readers are curious about, they also do really good reporting. Like, Taproot broke that story about the city center market moving from 104th Street to the GWG Jeans building. And they have a new story up about how Edmonton got its name. This stuff doesn't come from thin air, though. It really depends on monthly support from folks like you. If you like what you hear on this podcast, if you want more reporting about the city that you live in, become a Taproot member. It's 10 bucks a month, and you'll be supporting podcasts like this and speaking municipally and a whole bunch of weekly news roundups about tech and media and arts. Head to taprootedmonton.ca. And thanks to all of you who are already supporting it. You're the best. So back to the archives. Amanda and I walked into the reading room and it turned out our archivist buddy had slipped in through a side door while we were waiting outside for her. Oh, you, you went through the back door. Cool. Hi, Karen. Hello. <laughs> uh, friend of the podcast, Karen Simonson. 
I mean, I, call, I consider you a friend of the podcast. Yes. Because you were on our high-level episode. I was indeed, yeah. <laughs> um, so I've brought Amanda Van Merlin with me. Um, she has a question about dams. We just want to learn more about dams in North Saskatchewan. Her question is about like how dams have changed our relationship with the river, but um, I thought it might be interesting to try to look for some of the documents about like how and why some of the dams on the watershed were built, like the Brazo or Bighorn. Um, and um, you had maybe an inkling that maps might be of interest to us, but um, yeah, did you, did, you, did you think of any records that might be cool for us? Um, I think there were a few records. We can check the card catalog again and see what there is. Um, but I think, yeah, maps might, because there might be some before and after maps too, to Ooh. see maybe how the course might have changed. Cool. So, yeah. Does that sound interesting? That does sound interesting. Okay. So we're in this big, like, fancy rotunda of the reading room with the provincial archives, and we're about to pull out cards from like an old school card catalog from like library in your elementary school days. <laughs> it's true. We still use them daily. <laughs> so you said Brazo. Mm -hmm. Karen flipped through the cards, helped us find some provincial government records that might be juicy, and got us some little yellow retrieval slips to fill out. We decided to start with the Brazo Dam files. The Brazo Dam is southwest of Edmonton on the Brazo River, which eventually feeds into the North Saskatchewan. This one was built in the 60s. We also flipped through a card catalog to find maps of the watershed. Bow River. Bow River. What's on the bow? Which actually doesn't have a dam on it. Karen brought back a stack of these things called returns. They're basically requests from members of the Legislative Assembly for more information about a topic and then information being returned to them. The Brazo Dam was built in 1962, and we found out one big issue at the time was who was paying for it. The provincial government wanted to even out the flow of the river a bit. So they paid for the dam up front and then leased and sold it to Calgary Power. Calgary Power was interested because they had the option of adding hydroelectric capacity to the dam, which they did, and eventually Calgary Power turned into TransAlta. So they still run that hydro plant. Anyway, there was a big controversy in the 60s because the social credit government decided to just make Calgary Power pay for the construction costs of the dam, not the interest costs on the loan that they took out to build it. So, yeah, I think that what's interesting about that is in my mind that changes your relationship with water from one of this is what we use to survive and drink to one of this provides the way to make the economy go. Uh. You know what I mean? Like it like that seems to be a bit of a shift. Huh. But I don't know. Like, that's just me reading into this. I don't know if this is like an actual because the Brazo Dam was needed to augment the water flow in the Saskatchewan River, the government was faced with either building this dam for pollution control mm. or associate itself with Calgary Power to construct a combined power and pollution control dam. By pollution, I guess they mean like flooding and... and no, I think they literally mean like if the flows go down in the river. This is another thing that was in the Wikipedia article. If the flows go down in the river, you um, like concentrate all of the pollution. Oh. So, because you get all the water evaporating out, but then you get all of the like heavy metals and stuff or anything like that, any pollution left in there. And then that water in the river is way grosser and way more toxic than it would be if, um, if the water flow was high all the time. Yeah. And across, like in every um, 
because you there's stories about the rivers in um, like Chicago and stuff being set on fire, and so I, I imagine that, and that was kind of it was earlier, but it was like the 20s to the 50s, and then after we after the 50s and 60s, we started to like clean up our rivers, and now they're more natural, quote unquote. So like that that's really interesting. Hmm. Um, Suddenly, Karen popped up with some photos. Hello. <laughs> This is why I can't do horror movies. Like, it's too easy to do a jump scare. <laughs> okay. Oh, some photos. Some photos. Some oh, that's very exciting. Photos. photos, thank you. Okay. The, the overall impression from this photo is kind of wild, seeing mm-hmm. how much of it has been stripped clear of trees. Mm-hmm. Um, it yeah. looks like what I think of today is like the northern Alberta, like, Mm-hmm. Um, Tarsens region landscape. Oh yeah, a little of, bit. Yeah, like stripped of any vegetation. Yeah, and like now when you go into the reservoir, all of this area is has no trees, and because it's like it wasn't a lake area to start with, so it kind of just doesn't know what it needs to be like environmentally. So it just looks really weird, and it's all mushy, and it's kind of smelly. Like when you go at low water levels. Hmm. Um, just because of some of the vegetation and I don't think they cleared it the way that they do now uh, well they, I think they cleared it but they didn't remove any of the tree roots and stuff so there was like there were all of these like trees left over or tree stumps left over and it's like it, it, it's nice because those areas actually keep the artifacts really well so that's archaeologically that's good but it just it does look really it's almost like the moon Yes, let's, let's look at these maps. This map of the Saskatchewan River Basin has like a big yellow area linking Edmonton and the North Saskatchewan River and the Battle River and Red Deer and the Red Deer River Basin and um, Lethbridge and Saskatoon and Prince Albert are all In the covered by this mm-hmm. yellow blob. And yep. I don't usually think of Edmonton and Prince Albert as being part of one thing. But in this map, they they are part of the same watershed. All part of Saskatchewan River Basin. Yeah. That's cool. So cool. Yeah. What I like about a map like this is it divides geography in a totally different way than yeah. we usually do. Yeah, 100%. Like, we don't, like, this isn't how I think about dividing up the province. Like, the way... I feel like the way that we travel divides it up. So mm-hmm. like thinking about changing relationships and stuff like that is thinking about how fur traders probably thought about the watersheds and stuff like that. And then how first nations thought about the watersheds mm-hmm. and how, like how you divide people based on like which watershed, that they, like not necessarily divide, but like you would know your watershed. Mm-hmm. So if you were using it to travel up and down, so it, it goes back to another question that I, like to think about sometimes which is are our rivers highways or are they barriers mm. and it get it depends on if you have canoe or not <laughs> so yeah what did we learn okay today we mostly learned that the the river was dammed for this pollution control and hydroelectric thing, or hydroelectric reasons, um, and 
it's really nice to have that confirmed out of the records from the Legislative Assembly. So that's really nice. What is really interesting is just about how how much hydroelectric power there is in Alberta. And I, I didn't realize how much there actually was and how much power generation there was from the hydroelectric stuff versus, say, coal and oil and all of that other kind of stuff that I just assumed that we would be. Like, I assumed we were all natural gas powered. So that's the Brazo. I went back to the provincial archives to dig up files on the other dam on a river, up in the foothills, the Bighorn Dam. Now that story is a lot less weird pollution control methods and a lot more, oh my god, there were real people living there. When we come back, we'll get to that. And an author with some really wild stories about blobs of fat and giant icebergs on the river. But first, Let's Find Out is brought to you in part by a podcast called Overdue Finds, presented by the Edmonton Public Library. It's hosted by Bryce Crittenden and Caroline Land. They talk about movies, music, books, stuff you might want to check out next time you're at the library. It comes out every two weeks, and you can find the show at epl.ca slash podcast. That's overdue finds, epl.ca slash podcast. This episode is also brought to you in part by the Unheard Youth Podcast. It's a new show created by the Center for Race and Culture, spearheaded by a producer whose work I really like, Rose Eva Forbes Jenkins. You'll get a sneak preview of that podcast at the end of our show. It is March 20th. We are... Stardate, March 20th. Stardate, March 20th. Trevor, we are at your place watching Dragon Prince. <clears throat> um, we've had some developments with the research, but more importantly, there have been some developments with March Mammal Madness. Fill us in. I haven't been super on top of it due to election and stuff happening. Uh, But I did uh, overhear a brouhaha, an upset. One of the the pairs of animals, the tag teams, uh, was the (laughs) aardvark cucumber. I don't know. It's like an animal and and a cucumber. (laughs) And they, uh, they upset. They managed to defeat like an armadillo or something. I don't know. It's cool because, like, cucumbers are just, like, they're literally, like, they're not even blooded, but if they were, they'd be cold-blooded because they're, like, a cooling fruit. And they they defeated a hot-blooded animal. All right. Real, live, <laughs> locomotionary animal. Sessile organism. <laughs> Wait, no, mobile, right? Sessile is stuck. Okay, thank you for that update, Trevor. So... We meet up at my place, Trevor and Amanda and I, and an author who's written about the whole watershed that feeds into our beautiful river, which helps explain why she introduces herself by talking about which part of the river she grew up on. Okay, so uh, we are here with uh, Billy Milholland, um, an author of a a lovely book about the North Saskatchewan uh, watershed. Um, Billy, would you mind just introducing yourself uh, a little bit about how you came to write this book? Ah, well... (laughs) I was born on the river downstream of Edmonton, and I played at the river my my whole growing up years. We were three three miles from town, and we did things that nobody should ever do. We would, when the river broke up and there were big fat chunks of ice, we used to get on them and see how far we could we could ride before the ice kind of jammed and got to shore. Whoa. Why we didn't drown, I don't know. <laughs> my, I wouldn't let my kids do that or my grandkids. I've always. I've always had an interest in the river. My dad fished in the river. I fished in the river. And then in um, the 60s, before I left home, 
we were still fishing in the river, but we were told we couldn't eat the fish. Mm. Um, we didn't know why we couldn't eat the fish because we had no idea what was happening upstream. Was this a methylmercury problem? No, no. This this meth the, the mercury mercury and low doses have have always been in the in the river mud because yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a silty river, but no. This this was uh, big chunks of ugly stuff coming down the river, including fat and because wow. everything went into the river. And they they had they had some uh, engineers and people come come and try to figure out okay what is, what what is this stuff. And so probably in the 50s was the first time that I think that the, the smaller population on this river finally realized, oops, what we're doing on the land is impacting the river. We had a lot of meat packing plants back then and they dumped everything in the river. But one time I noticed there was an old international harvester fridge mm -hmm. that someone had pushed over the side. Mm -hmm. And I had said to my dad, well, what will happen if that falls in the river? And he said, oh, don't worry. He said, the river cleans itself. And that was kind of the understanding right. until I think one of the big things in, what is it, 1954 maybe, Selenese, big Selenese plant on the river. They were, they were creating, I don't know, uh, petroleum-based spun fiber, kind of Fentex. Uh, right. I don't know what, what anybody would remember it as. Now, it would for synthetic clothing. Yeah. It was really exciting for the city, 300 jobs. And, and of course, all of their toxic effluent went into the river, but nobody worried mm -hmm. until, I think they opened in August of whatever year that was. Mm -hmm. December of that year, in um, Battle, North Battleford, mm -hmm. the water was stinky. And the people turned on their taps and there was this horrible smell. They had a shower and they were stuck with this smell. So they went to their town council. They threw vegetables oh, <laughs> at their town council because they thought that they they, they, they had made, yeah. made a, some mistake. Well, of course, eventually they knew that wasn't true, but where did it come from? It took them probably until February of the next year to trace it all the way up wow. to Selenies. And Selenies went, what? How can that, like, we didn't. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what, what did they do? They, dr they drilled a, a well and dumped it down. So Billy eventually wrote this book with the North Saskatchewan Watershed Alliance because it was so interesting and she was so tired of seeing places like National Geographic talk about locations that weren't this magical river right here. Amanda told Billy how she came up with this question and about her archaeology trips to the Brazo Reservoir. It's it's magical and fascinating, and it gives you this glimpse of what used to be. Yeah. And it wouldn't, I don't think it would have been really possible to see that without the dam being yeah. there. So. Well, that, and that's that's the thing about dams, is that the, they're, the, the benefits and the, and the deterrence for dams are, it's hard to balance. It's hard to figure out. But, yeah. and, and just like you said, they built the Brazo Dam because we didn't have enough flow in the river yeah. in the winter. Exactly. And, and it was building up all this gross stuff. And we that was something we confirmed with the um, with some of the documents that we found is they were like, it's for pollution control. And that was something that I yeah. like yeah. vaguely heard or read on Wikipedia when I was doing my very preliminary research when we were first doing it. And it was for flow control. And then they were talking about the pollution on the North Saskatchewan. And I was like, all right, it was the 50s. They were just dumping stuff yeah. in the river. I, I, just real linear, I have more detailed uh, notes on that part of the Brazo uh, Reservoir rationale. 
Um, this is from a Calgary Power draft memo on the Brazo Dam from 1958. Um, so they're explaining the justification for the building of the dam. Um, they say, so this is from the provincial archives when I was there the other day. Um, they say, apart from power, the project would provide a threefold benefit. First, in the months that are critical from the pollution standpoint, the flow of the North Saskatchewan through Edmonton would be nearly three times that of the river in its natural state. So that's what you were mentioning, really, but like, uh, in the winter, the water level gets a little low, and people downstream might notice the water getting a little stinky, um, thus providing additional water for sewage dilution and for industrial use. Yeah. Secondly, its silt load might be reduced, as all the silt originating above the dam would be trapped by the reservoir. And thirdly, it would cut the maximum height reached by a flood such as that of 1915, the highest in 70 years or more, by at least five feet. Um, so just a, a, a yeah. source to what you're saying. Well, I, I know that, that uh, I know if, uh, the uh, dilution of pollution, and, and that certainly did happen, and, and it, still, it still evens out the flow in the wintertime. Because uh, you know, as, as everything's frozen in the entire watershed at that point, pretty much what's what's making coming into the river is is springs and it's, it's groundwater, and so there's not a lot of it, and so it. But what the pollution we put into the river these days is not, it's not nearly as gross as it used to be, but still the the fish need. The fish in the aquatic environment needs needs some flow to survive because back in the 50s and 60s, by the time the river water got to the border, there was no oxygen left in it, and so I mean, there's nothing can live. The border with Saskatchewan. With Saskatchewan, yes. Billy mentioned she was a bit skeptical that the Brazo Dam could do much to stop a flood hitting Edmonton, since so many other tributaries pour into the North Saskatchewan downstream of the dam. I don't think the the flood the flooding was primacy of use. I think it was basically like a it hopefully this will also do that. Like I think they right. were probably yeah. like doing the thing where they're like threefold uses, but <laughs> it was it was basically like we still really want to make power. This is yeah. really important yes. to us. Yeah. So um yeah, I'm not I'm not sure like the the dam overtopping is the most dangerous thing. So if you overtop a dam it like immediately is like useless. So you have to like do a bunch of fixes and all that kind of stuff afterwards. So I think the uh, one of the things that I remember from 2013 um, in Edmonton, because Calgary flooded and Edmonton was close, but it didn't quite flood, um, was that they were talking about how the, the Brazo Reservoir was like at capacity and they weren't sure if they were going to be able to like keep it and they had yeah. to like keep the flows down and all of that kind of stuff. So like this breaks a dam. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Oh no, I didn't know that. Well, but these are earth dams. Yeah, yeah, they're not. They're not. They're not big. I don't know what happens to a big, the big concrete dams that they have in the United States. But these are earth dams. I think it. Yeah. It like there. There is a way that they. I'm not an engineer. Um, I think there is a way that they build it so that they're like all of the the like they know where the pressure is coming from, mm -hmm. and then as soon as you overtop it, you'll get erosion and all of that kind of fun stuff, oh, and wow. then all of the sudden, we're not okay, man. Like. It's, this is not good. What do you still want to know that we haven't figured out yet that Billy might be able to help us with? We've got this lovely book about the North Saskatchewan River and it's like 12 sub watersheds. Yeah. Um, there are sections on the Brazo Dam and the Bighorn Dam. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. I, I guess my question might be how, how has learning more about the river and more about engaging it and that 
changing through time has changed your perception of the river because my experiences aren't very long and they seem to be it's in this one it's in this sort of period where the river was clean and it's always been clean in my mind and it's always been exactly the same as it was because it the dams have been the same and all of this kind of stuff so my my perception of the river is sort of like it's there sometimes it might flood and but and it's always been like a clean source of drinking water and we've had a really good water treatment plant and all this kind of stuff but I'm wondering how your perception has changed growing up and then doing the research and then going forward how is your perception of the river changed? Oh, it cha- it changes continually because, of course, when I was when I was really young, going to the river, in pro- well, it probably was the fifties. It was just that that was that tipping point, mm-hmm. where my dad had fished the river there since the twenties and pulled out giant, absolute giant sturgeon mm-hmm. that could feed like he had a big family could feed the whole family for and and neighbors for like a week. It, there's they were huge. And so I heard those stories, and I heard the and the and the the big big jackfish and the walleye and, and that he pulled out. We fished in the river when I was a kid. We caught suckers in the creek and we cooked them on outdoor fires. When I was quite young, when I went with older kids, but then then as we went along, then my 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 perception of the river when I was an older teenager and when I married and went away from the river was that the river was her- terrible. It was stinky, it was full of crap, and you, you shouldn't step into it. Mm-hmm. Then uh, when I came, came round and moved to Edmonton and discovered what had happened then was in the improvement in water, water treatment, improvement in, uh, in the perception of you can't throw stuff in, in the river anymore. We see the land still. We still see the land as real estate. Mm-hmm. First Nations people don't do that. They don't see the land as real estate even today. I mean, they understand real estate, of course. Mm-hmm. But f- for them, and I, I, I know what they're talking about because paying attention to the river with my feet on the banks and in the river, and we need to get back to that. Mm-hmm. No matter, no matter whether we try to do flood mitigation or whatever, because if you go to Europe and any older country, they're just they have just much just technology as we do, but because their history is long, their their understanding of their history is long. Sometimes they have a lot, a lot deeper and more profound relationship with their rivers. They sing about their rivers. They 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 cry about their rivers and. And to us, our rivers are just a pipe mm. carrying water. And that, to me, is, it, it won't end well, mm. is, is what, I, what I, my, I feel anyway. Um, so I have gathered a pile of documents and stuff I went back to the archives after Amanda and I had been there the other day, um, uh, partly just to like pick up the rest of the files because there was still stuff coming out when we had to leave, yeah. um, and partly to follow up on some of the stuff that you'd written in the book um, about the Bighorn Dam Reservoir and about uh, land displacement there. Um, we had sort of a hunch that probably people were moved to like flood the reservoirs for um, the Brezo and Bighorn Dam, but I didn't know any of the specifics, so I was really interested to read your chapter on the Bighorn Dam and and the creation of Lake Abraham. And you mentioned that um, the 
Bighorn Reserve, um, uh, like not only were the people flooded out of a ton of land there in, in the Kootenai Plains area, but between the federal and provincial government, land was promised to the band, and then like a tenth or so of that land, it was actually given by the provincial government. Um, so I wanted to like learn more about that context. Um, so one of the things I found, um, this is from uh, 19... 69. Um, so that was after? This was after the Brazo Dam had been built, but before, before the Bighorn. Before the Bighorn. Okay. Yeah. So um, Brazo was first, and then Bighorn yeah. was built. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this is uh, a letter titled, Why the Bighorn Dam Should Not Be Built, a brief presented to the Honorable H. Strom, Premier of Alberta, by the people of the Bighorn Indian Reserve. And uh, from what I can tell from other documents in the file, it, it seems like it was presented in person to the legislature by Chief John Snow at the time. Not John Snow like from Game of Thrones, he has an H in his name, but still very exciting that his name was John Snow. I'm just gonna play some excerpts from the Bighorn Reserve's letter to Premier Strom. Again, this is the second dam, the one that was built much farther upstream in the foothills, mainly for hydroelectric power. I've gone camping here in the Kootenai Plains. I think of this place with purple sunsets and mountains in the distance. I think about that huge reservoir, Lake Abraham. This letter speaks so fiercely and plainly about Stony Nakoda people's connection to the place underneath that lake, and about how unfairly they felt they'd been treated during the whole dam construction process. Uh, It starts, um, It is our privilege to present this brief to you and your cabinet ministers. We do not want the Bighorn Dam to be built. We've heard stories that the government was thinking of building a dam in the area, but the first we really knew that this was true was when the machines and men started to do some work. It describes how... 90 people in their reserve are basically the only ones who will be directly affected by the flooding of this massive part of the Kootenai Plains. The white man, he is proud of his history. He writes of it in his books. He saves old buildings and he makes special places to save his history and remind him of his culture. The Indian too has things in his history and his culture which he wants to save. The Indian may not be able to write his history, but he has his special places which he can go to and see. This is his history and part of his culture. The government should not be destroying this part of our history. Instead, you should help us Indian people to save these places so that our grandchildren and even the white man's grandchildren can know and see and understand these things. The letter talks about stony Nakota graves in the area that was marked for flooding. The government has acted very badly about these graves. The forestry people have known that Indian graves were here, but they did not even try to find out from us where these graves were until just a few weeks ago. In January, Mr. Sutherland of the forestry was told that there were more than 15 Indian graves in this area, but still he did not find out where these were. The government then sent in the bulldozers, which are destroying the markers, so that now there are at least three graves which are forever lost. This kind of action was not necessary, and it is only because you have no regard for us Indians that you acted in this way. It talks about spiritual meaning on this land. The area that is to be flooded has a great religious meaning to us Indian people. It is not just us bighorn people who use this area to make a sun dance, but Indians from Duffield, Morley, Hobima, and Ochise have all used this area in just the last few years. A sun dance is not for fun, and it is made as an important place part of the Indian's religious belief. We cannot make a sun dance in just any place. The Great Spirit shows a man in a dream where the sun dance is to be made. There are only special places where the Spirit wants the sun dance to be made. The sun dance lodge and the ground where a sun dance is made become a sacred area. Even after the Sundance is over, the place where it was made is still sacred and the Indians come to these areas. This is the reason why we do not take down the Sundance Lodge. The government sends in the bulldozers and already the old Sundance Lodges are destroyed. This is a bad thing you do against our religious beliefs and against our God. This is a special religious area for us Indians and the Great Spirit will be very angry if you flood this area. 
It is not only that you flood the area, but even the part that is not going to be flooded, the government made into a special park called a quote-unquote natural area. In this natural area, a person cannot cut trees or set up their camp. Dam breaking. This is something I hadn't thought about when you were talking about like, oh, it's an earth dam, and what happens if it goes, if it goes over the top? Um, the Bighorn Reserve is about two and a half miles downstream from where they were building the dam. If the dam breaks, the only people who would be hurt would be us. Yep. The reserve is on low land, and if the waters came, all the houses and all the people on the Bighorn would be destroyed. There are no white people who would be hurt. The nearest place that might be flooded would be Rocky Mountain House, and this town is far away. You can see now how many problems are being made by the government building this dam. Even you white men should be able to understand that if you do build this dam, uh, you will be doing a very bad thing towards us Indian people. Some of the people on the Bighorn have said that if you build the dam, you may as well kill them first, because after the dam is built, it will be their death anyway. We ask you to have some feeling and thought for us Indian people and not to build this Bighorn Dam. For many years, the white man has been destroying the Indian culture. This is your opportunity to help us save our culture. We ask you to realize which is more important, the dam or us Indian people. Yeah, it's wonderful. And it's, oh God, it's beautifully written and it's so heartbreaking. Oh, I... <laughs> Yeah. Right? When I when I when I found this in the folder, I actually had to just like get up and shake it off. Yeah. Oh, it was... No kidding. So there was actually a follow up to this letter. Um. So um, I don't know exactly who went, but some of the officials from the provincial government were invited to come to the community and um, chat with people there. And they did go. And they did go. And um, there's a. This what, what year was this again? 1969. Wow. Okay. 69. Yeah. I, oh, read the whole thing out. But basically it says, like, we understand your points. Your points are very important. Um, we really want to respect your culture, and also we're going to build the dam anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I found an article in the St. Albert and Sturgeon Gazette. From August 1972, um, uh, Calgary Power invites newsmen to witness closing at Bighorn Dam. Um, so I don't. It's mostly just like a sort of like awestruck article of like how big it is, how much power this this thing is going to create. Um, Calgary Power like ran this tour kind of. Um, so one of the things that they tried to address was um, people were concerned that uh, the the dam would like affect uh, fishing and wildlife in the area. Mm. Um, to relieve the collective minds of the media people of technical and ecological impact of the project. Oh, hey, there's an ad for the Lingnan, the yeah, Chinese right? restaurant in Edmonton. I was like, damn, that's so cool. Okay, sorry, we're in a, we're, this important. Like the Lingnan. <laughs> to relieve the collective minds of the media people of technical and ecological impact of the project, Calgary Power hosts made us of the natural assets of this area and took their guests on a fishing trip. Um, so, um, the guide was an experienced woman who could outdo most everyone at catching trout, entertain with an, entertain with an accordion and singing her own original composition and perhaps unwittingly added something to the woman's lib. Li- <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> uh, okay. So, um. Amazing. <laughs> I can't even... Jeez. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm dying here. <laughs> Billy is currently wearing a sweater that says, "Girls, girls just want to have fundamental rights." 
so I don't think she unwittingly added anything to women's love. I think that was completely like women can play accordions too, man. Yeah, like I didn't I didn't come there as it was just a prop. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's man. too funny. Um, horribly funny. <laughs> oh, jeez. So what I find interesting about this article is um, they uh, don't talk to anyone from the reserve nearby, which I guess, you know, you can't fit everything into one article, but that stood out to me. Yeah. Um, it, it seemed to be uh, written right after the dam had built and built, so before the reservoir was fully made. Um, and that also, it struck me that Calgary Power was, like, thinking about the yeah. the, the yeah. public yeah, perception. Like, the small amounts of anxiety of, like, we're doing this thing and we don't actually know how it's going to go. Like, we, we think it's going to go fine, but we're still moving a large amount of water. And we just want people to think that they're pretty safe. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and it is, like, I will say that every dam project that I have ever looked at, like the photos we we found of the Brazo Reservoir getting constructed, they are awesome, like mm-hmm. in a way that the definition gives credence to. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's intense. And there is just a little bit of anxiety of like, are we doing this as properly as we could? Um, but they're like, apparently so far so good. So... You can still fish. Somebody won the trout fishing contest, yeah, so right? it's yeah. all it's all fine. Um, yeah. So I've thrown a a, a ton of um, material at you today, Amanda. Um, thoughts on your, your 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 big question was how have the dams in the North Saskatchewan changed our relationship with the river? Um, what what do, what do you conclude? What are your conclusions? I I think I'm gonna go back to the hashtag you used, which is. It's damn complicated <laughs> because yes. because I I think it it is it is about like where you exist. So like me in Edmonton, even when this was being built, it wouldn't necessarily change my relationship mm-hmm. with the river. But if I lived in Rocky Mountain House, if I lived on reserve, if I used this area to hunt and fish and all this kind of stuff, it would definitively change my relationship. Um, and so it it's like it's it's again part of these threads. It's like how much does it change and does it change? And I think it has for a number of people, but it also isn't at the forefront of a lot of our minds. And I think I'll say this again is just because I, I said this off off mic. It it would be really interesting to hear from more different kinds of people about that change in their relationship with mm-hmm. the River Valley because I'm not that old. I haven't been in Edmonton and around Edmonton for like for that long you've got more experience and I think that's really important to she's know. looking at Billy not me yeah, yeah. <laughs> to clarify yeah Chris and I are yeah. the same age so I'm older. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's just like like does a person who paddles the river have they have they had different experiences and changes like if you've lost a landscape that you're your ancestors have used for thousands of yes. years yeah. um how does that change your relationship if you've got a different perception of the landscape how does that change everything and i i i'm still like trying to wrap my brain around it but i think it it does it depends quite heartily on where you're where you're at and and all that kind of stuff so it's like for me it's good to think about this all the time like where's the water come out of my tap what is what am i 
throwing out what am I throwing into the river what how am I enjoying the river valley like all of these kinds of things and in it some of the like I think some of the perception for me is that things have changed without me even knowing Mm -hmm. my relationship to the river has been changed by these infrastructure projects and I I don't know exactly how they've been changed Mm -hmm. so and that's still something that I will probably need to think on for possibly the rest of my life Thanks for listening. Let's Find Out is produced by Trevor Chow-Fraser and me, Chris Chang and Phillips. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at chris at letsfindoutpodcast.com. You can download all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. Our newsletter is launching today. You'll hear updates about episodes we've been working on and live events. We're doing a book club this season too. So the first book we'll be reading is Billy's book, Living in the Shed. The idea is I'm going to pick a book every month, and if you're interested, we'll meet up and talk about it. So for those of you who are already signed up, I'll send out the meetup details in the newsletter. If you're not signed up yet, you can do that on our website just by signing up for the newsletter. Hey, we're just circling back to Marshmallow Madness. Well, uh, so in the round of eight, I'd say there's only real one, there's only really one uh, upset maybe, the Tiger Quoll, Q-U-O-L-L. It's like this tiny little marsupial. Um, but, okay, so I have a problem with this part of the bracket. The original um, bottom of this bracket, this is the category. So like animals that are like cats, but they're not cats. Anyway, so this had dandelion, because it's not a cat. And it was facing off uh, against Nimravid, which is like a saber-toothed tiger. And I was like, okay, dandelion has to win because saber-toothed tigers are extinct. They can't uh-huh. win. But it won. So I was like, I'm calling their bluff. It's extinct. And I've, they, they called my bluff. So Nimravid <laughs> went through, but then Tiger Quoll beat the Nimravid because the Nimravid was attacked by another Nimravid. So... <laughs> I... <laughs> I don't watch March Madness. I don't watch basketball. Um, I am generally pretty lost when people talk about basketball. I feel more lost talking to you about this competition. <laughs> but now I know the word Tiger Quoll. Yeah. Thank you to Amanda Van Merlin and Billy Milholland. Thanks also to Karen Simonson, Michael Gorley, Robin Wallace, and Natalia Peterzakowski at the Provincial Archives of Alberta. Sorry, Natalia, if I have said your name wrong. And to Taproot Edmonton and the Edmonton Historical Board. Thanks to everyone who's been supporting this podcast, especially Finn. Original music for this podcast is by the Fountain of Loveliness, Doug Hoyer. All right, that's it for this episode. Until next time, keep your questions coming. I mentioned before, this episode is brought to you in part by a new show called the Unheard Youth Podcast. It's made by the Center for Race and Culture here in Edmonton. It's been cooking for quite a while, and I keep hearing snippets about all the cool trips they've been doing to put it together. So let's have a listen to a little preview. Hello and welcome to the Unheard Youth Podcast. I'm your host, Rose Eva Forks Jenkins. We are a podcast 
featuring what newcomer youth have to say about identity, migration, and belonging. Here's a compilation featuring some of the many voices that you're going to hear on the next 13 episodes of the podcast. Ah, uh, we were recording. What's popping? If everyone's ready, we'll start then. I don't know if you had anything else to say. I have things to say. <laughs> Can you tell me uh, when you came to Canada, how old you are, like, you know, your introduction to the, to the whole world who's listening right now? I'm from Eritrea, East African country. I have been here <laughs> almost three months. Euh, moi c'est Florence, j'ai 17 ans, je suis au collège Ma mère haïtienne, mon père est irlandais, mais j'ai plus vécu avec ma mère, fait que je me considère vraiment beaucoup plus haïtienne. Hello, my name is Shalom Justin. I'm an international student from Nigeria. Well, I'm currently living in Fort St. John, my final year, grade 12. Hello, namaste, my name is Kafu I was born in South Korea from a fully South Korean family. However, I can't really identify myself as Korean because my family and I immigrated to Australia four years ago. We immigrated back to Canada eight years ago, and this is where we live now. I immigrated to Canada after the war that's happened in Syria. Like, I was so comfortable in my country, and I wasn't thinking that I'll leave my country in one day. But after the dangers getting more and more, so our, our family decided to move to Canada. And after I get here, I had, like, better opportunity to study and to work and to have a good friends. Hello, and welcome to our interview about immigration and identity. I could live in outer space. It's just all these other people make me feel out of place. À chaque fois qu'une personne caucasienne m'approche, et surtout quand il apprend que je suis haïtienne, ils vont commencer à me parler de griot. <laughs> I can go on and on about why I love Toronto, and it really has to, a lot to do with that diversity. What I like to say is that this city is this beautifully imperfect mosaic of of stories and histories and experiences. I think that's the point where we're at in Canadian history now, where we see and acknowledge and respect the benefits that immigration brings to us today. A lot of people, a lot of females, everybody in this world right now need to have role models that are like not apologetic of where they come from and they're not embarrassed of their stories. You just heard a sample of some of the amazing voices featured on the Unheard Youth Podcast. Our mission is to feature newcomer youth voices from all over Canada. I traveled to Fort St. John, British Columbia, Edmonton, Alberta, Toronto, Ontario, and Montreal, Quebec to hear about the challenges, successes, and everyday life experiences of immigrant and refugee youth. So make sure to check out our website, unheardyouth.ca. You can find English and French transcriptions and translations of all 13 of our episodes, as well as our beautiful listening kit. Our listening kit includes pictures, a timeline, and discussion questions. Once again, the website is unheardyouth, all one word, .ca. 
And don't forget to follow us on social media. We have Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts with the username Unheard Youth Podcast. This project has been made possible in part by the Government of Canada. Ce projet a été rendu possible en partie grâce au gouvernement du Canada. We are the Unheard Youth Voices, so you have to listen. <laughs>